Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the 14th chapter, taking a brief break from Isaiah this week, and looking at Matthew chapter 14, a pretty familiar passage, Jesus and Peter on the water, Matthew 14, and we'll read verses 22 to 33. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Immediately, this is Jesus, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we look at it, let's pray. Our God, we do acknowledge our need of your Holy Spirit, whereby to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And so we ask that you would sustain us right now, that you would sustain me, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, snapshots in a photo album. Uh, yes, kids, there used to be these things called photo albums that were like books of pictures. Uh, they weren't just on the phone. Photo albums that contain snapshots of individuals' lives tell you something about that person or that family. Uh, just like we saw snapshots of VBS throughout the week, I mean, that was. Those were 27 of hundreds of photos, but they give you a window into what's going on. And there's a snapshot here in Scripture, a snapshot of Peter and a snapshot of Jesus. And they give us windows not only into their nature, but ours as well. Just like when you're looking through a photo album, you see that that person that has that smile or the the family who's doing that recreation activity together, whatever it is, it reminds you, ah, yes, I know them. I know about them. And even if you're looking at your own snapshot, you see, ah, that is characteristic of me. Well, what we see here is characteristic of us. Peter is often a focal point in this passage, but this passage tells us abundantly more things that are more important than simply just Peter because it gives us a window into the nature and action of our Savior, 
a window into Jesus, this snapshot of Peter and Jesus on the water. And what you need to see today through this snapshot is that Jesus is the sovereign and divine Son of God that we need. That's what I want you to see, that through this, Jesus is the sovereign and divine Son of God that we need. Now, Jesus, you'll see in your outline there, they're covering it in two points, Jesus with a sovereign plan, and then Jesus showing his divine power. Well, we start with that sovereign plan. What is going to take place? Well, what starts out actually is a major scene change. If you've ever seen a musical production or a theatrical production, you know, after a certain act, the curtain drops, and then you see all of this, all these silhouettes moving in the background, taking set pieces away, bringing other pieces out. And we have a bit of a scene change here. Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000, and then the curtain drops. Immediately, he makes the disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side. He dismisses the crowds, and then he goes up on a mountain. So in just a couple verses, the scene has shifted, time has gone forward, and we are in the fourth watch of the night. Now, one thing I want you to see, Jesus' plan for this miracle, Jesus' plan for this event involves his own prayer. Now, we don't get the content of the prayer. We just see that he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, if you just look at the context leading up to this point, there are several things that you can see that would be leading up to his need for prayer. I mean, of course, before him, he has this miracle he's going to perform. Before him, he's going to meet increased opposition. Uh, Before him, he's looking forward to the cross. But look at what has just come. In Matthew 13, he's rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. In Matthew 14, his friend John the Baptist is beheaded. His disciples come to him, Jesus, you know, John, Herod has killed him. Jesus has suffered a one-two punch, Matthew 13 and 14. Then he feeds the 5,000, and they want to crown him king right there. Think of Jesus' need to withdraw in prayer. Have you ever suffered a one-two punch, and then that temptation comes along? Look at Jesus' example here of a withdrawal in prayer to ask that God would sustain him through what he has just suffered and through what he's going to suffer and what he's going through. It reminds us not only of our need to pray, but it also reminds us of Jesus' true humanity that he is truly 100% human, praying to the Father. I was listening to or watching a debate between a Muslim apologist and a Christian apologist, and they were debating the topic of Jesus' divinity, debating whether he really is God. And to the Muslim, this did not compute. And he referenced this exact fact that Jesus prayed. He's like, look, how can Jesus be God if he has to pray to God, if he has to pray to the Father. And he's missing the fact that the Son of God took to himself a true human soul, a true human body, and yes, as a man, needed to pray. We're reminded of his true humanity here. 
Well, Jesus' plan not only involves prayer, Jesus' plan involves placing his disciples in a situation of great difficulty. Look at what he's done. He's pushed them out into the sea in the fourth watch of the night. So this is roughly between 3 and 6 a.m. The disciples are on the boat. Now, if you look at the timeline, they finish dinner. Jesus says, get out of here, dismisses the crowds. From the ending of supper to the moment we're at here is somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 and 11 hours. And John tells us they've made it roughly three to four miles through the Sea of Galilee. They've gone eight to 11 hours, and for experienced fishermen, only made it four miles, halfway through. They are stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, you could say, did it to them, placed them there so that he could display his power and who he is to them. I was reminded of this a couple years ago when I was in South Carolina. I was in an aviation unit doing work as a chaplain. And of course, you know, pilots, crew, hey, chaplain, want to go for a ride? Sure, let's go for a ride. So I hop in the Blackhawk. And in July in South Carolina, there are a bajillion pockets of hot air in the sky, right? And so this helicopter ride becomes more turbulent and more frightening than any turbulent experience I've ever had on any airplane at all. This helicopter ride was the worst. And it made me really think, like, are we going to make it back? I mean, even the crew who is experienced was getting ready to hurl, and we had just had lunch as well. They planned it perfectly. But then I realized, as I was having this moment of doubt and this moment of fear, God has placed me in this circumstance so that I would remember his hand is sovereignly over this situation. Nothing's going to happen to me that God does not intend. And through this situation, relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but through the simple situation of distress and difficulty, my mind is brought to God. God does the same thing in your lives. Situations of deprivation, of difficulty, of loss, of suffering, of terrible diagnoses, and they are there to draw your eyes to him so that he would display his power in what's going on in your life. That's exactly what he does with the disciples here. Think of Lazarus. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, He's sick, and Jesus waits for two days on purpose, does not go immediately to heal or raise Lazarus. He waits, and Jesus says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Whatever you are going through, whatever someone else you know is going through, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, Jesus' plan is put in place, and his plan is put in place to demonstrate that divine, sovereign nature and power. Looking at Jesus' divine power, we see, first of all, that his divine power is miraculous. 
in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I feel like we've been somewhat spoiled, uh, probably. I've definitely been spoiled because I'm a superhero nut. And so I watch all the superhero movies, and we're used to seeing awesome special effects with superheroes flying through the sky, walking on water, standing in front of a train, whatever it is. Jesus is here doing it in real life. This is not a special effect. This is not something that is fabricated. Jesus, as a man, is truly walking on the waves of the sea because he is in a class all his own. He is the God-man, and that's being demonstrated here. But his disciples respond, it's a ghost, and they cry out in fear. Now, why do the disciples think he's a ghost? Well, it, it is the fourth, fourth watch of the night. They've probably gone through a whole lot, be, getting racked by the wind and waves on the boat. So who knows how tired they are. But I also found it interesting, uh, John Gill is a great commentator who has insights into Jewish traditions at the time. Uh, not just true exposition from the word, but also what were some of the pharisaical things going on? And there is actually a written rule in the pharisaical tradition at this time. You weren't allowed to salute your friend at night for fear it could be a ghost. Now, who knows whether that really is what, you know, is behind their fear here. But regardless of whatever it is, they, they don't realize it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost walking on the sea. And his response, Jesus' answer is, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. Do not fear. And I, what I want you to see in this little section here is that Jesus is doing and saying things that only Yahweh, that only the one true God has the right to say and do. What gives any man the right to say, don't worry about the storm, it'll be okay. I mean, could you imagine if outside this window, the storm clouds come and you see a tornado drop on Northgate Boulevard right here out the window. And I just said, don't worry, it'll be okay. What gives this mere man any right to say that it'll really be okay, that that tornado's not going to just come busting through here? Jesus has that right because he is the creator, the one who commands the wind and the waves. He has the right to say, take courage, it's me don't be afraid. Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's the one who says, fear not, over and over again. One of the most repeated commands in Scripture, fear not, I'm with you, be not dismayed, I am your God, I will uphold you. It is I, it is Yahweh who says to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. From our call to worship, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot. Do you hear the analogy to what Jesus is doing right here? The clouds being his chariot, the one who walks upon the wings of the wind. In Job 9, Yahweh is the one who tramples the waves of the sea. And of course, Job is speaking of it figuratively, but here Jesus is a literal picture of the Lord trampling the waves of the sea. 
Yahweh is the one who tells Moses, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. This is Matthew's I am statement. It goes somewhat unnoticed. Normally, when we think of the I am statements of Jesus, we think of John. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Here, what Jesus says to them literally is, do not be afraid, I am. John repeats the same thing in his gospel. Jesus is Yahweh. He is telling them, I am here. Do not fear, take courage. Well, what does this do for Peter? It does give Peter courage. Now, we often think of Peter as being that, you know, brash, impulsive character, which he is. And here, the courage that he has drives him to say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out onto the water with you. Uh, Some might view Peter's request as being, again, brash, impulsive, perhaps sinful. I, I don't think so, because Peter is able to walk on the water in true faith, being sustained by God, at least for a time. So I I think it actually is a a, a good desire that Peter has to join his Savior on the water in participating with him. So Jesus knows that, you know, Peter's not going to last though. But but he says, go ahead, Peter, come. Peter's going to be an object lesson. He's going to be a snapshot for us. So Peter got out of the boat, verse 29, and walked on the water and came to Jesus. What I want you to see here is the principle at work. The the occurrence is Peter being able to miraculously, by God's power, walk on water. But what is the principle behind this? God providing supernatural sustainment to do the impossible. God provides supernatural sustainment to do the impossible. Now, I don't mean to diminish this miracle. Uh, this miracle is a, uh, an overcoming, a working in opposition to the forces of, forces of nature. But God is still able to work supernaturally to enable you to do what would otherwise be impossible in your life. The shattered relationships that you have. The handling of sickness and death in your circles, in your own self. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that he enables you to be sustained in what would otherwise be impossible. Only a Christian can look at these things and say, God is sustaining me. God, please sustain me through this. It's impossible apart from you. The preaching of the word, evangelism. I've, I've told preachers on different occasions, you know, if, if you are not depending on the Holy Spirit as you are delivering the word, if you are not depending on the Holy Spirit as you are sharing the word with someone in, the, in private evangelism, you might as well be Peter sinking in the water. If you're depending on your own strength to do anything like this, just be sinking. It is the Holy Spirit and His supernatural regenerating power that works through the foolishness of preaching. That's what the Scripture calls it. 
Because the world does not know God in its wisdom, it pleased God to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Through this silly thing, the scripture calls it, that I do, that takes place here, is what God uses to supernaturally save and conform his people to Christ. Well, God not only demonstrates, Jesus not only demonstrates his miraculous power, he also demonstrates his saving power. As Peter begins to doubt, as Peter begins to sink, there was a storm just last night, at least for a little while, uh, lasted for a little while, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading Leaf a story. Leaf is my son, two years old. I'm reading Leaf a book, and the thunder claps, and it just steals your attention away. No matter how much I want to continue reading, Leaf starts to cry. He's getting scared. That's, it was one thunderclap. Peter's on the water in the middle of a storm. Can you imagine the thunder, the wind, the waves crashing against the boat? And just like a simple thunderclap dominated my senses last night for just a moment, Peter allows the circumstances around him to dominate his senses. And he loses his trust. He loses his faith as he sees his circumstances, loses his faith in the sustaining power of Jesus. So he cries out, Lord, save me. R.C. Sproul said once, that is the most important cry a human being could ever make. Have you made it? Lord, save me. That is the most important cry a human being could ever make. And have you made it? Don't we see ourselves in, in Peter? That the Lord saves us. He sustains us. He's working for us. But then we begin to doubt his goodness. And sometimes it's not just doubting his sufficiency. Sometimes it's our own denial of our responsibility to obey. That as we are perhaps doing well against a sin that we've struggled against, but then that trigger happens and we decide to go down that road again and we fall. And in all those circumstances, whether it's doubting his sustainment, whether it's denying obedience and falling into sin, both in all cases, we cry out as believers, Lord, save me. We cry out with Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death as I continue to do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I should do? Lord, save me. This is not just our initial cry. This is our continual cry every day of our Christian life. Lord, save me and continue to save me. But if you're someone here who has not yet placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Realize that you are witness to his power in this passage, that you're witness to his power in the world, and you are in danger, peril. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has probably, I think, the most, if not one of the most, uh, maybe only seconded by Saul of Tarsus, I don't know. Nebuchadnezzar probably has the most dramatic conversion experience in all of Scripture. He is king of Babylon, and God humbles him, and he is made to eat grass 
like a cow for seven years. His nails grow long, his hair grows long, and at the end of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns to him, and he says, I praise the Lord God Most High who is able to humble those who have been proud. Nebuchadnezzar's converted. His saving power has been displayed. Then hear what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar's son. Belshazzar, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story. And though you knew all this, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. You have not bent the knee. You have not honored him. And the kingdom is stripped away from Belshazzar that night. He's murdered, and Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. You do not know how soon you will sink, how long you have for this world. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't let this day go on without repenting and believing in him. Don't be like a Belshazzar who knows the saving power of God, who hears of his wonderful miraculous works from this passage and others, and who sees it displayed in people's lives and continue to walk in rebellion. He says, the God in whose hand is your breath, you have not honored. Your breath is in the hands of God. Honor him by obeying him, by repentance and faith in Jesus. Because no matter what sins you've committed, they are forgivable. Peter will end up denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar probably killed hundreds, if not thousands of Jews. Saul of Tarsus murdering Jews on the road to Damascus. No matter what sins you've committed, you can be forgiven. Well, what's Jesus' response? Peter cries out, save me. And we see that Jesus is faithful to save. Though we are faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He's faithful not only to forgive us, but also to restore our faith. And we see a little bit of a picture of restoration in the physical touch that Jesus gives to Peter. I mean, think about it. Jesus is walking on the waves. Peter has cried, save me. Jesus could just by his supernatural power enable Peter to remain suspended. But what does Jesus do? He reaches out with his very human hand and grasps him and lets him know that he is there with him to restore his faith. Now he gives him a rebuke. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Yeah, and that same question applies to, us, to, applies to us. But we do see that Jesus is faithful to forgive, to save, and to restore. After Jesus grasps him, they get into the boat, verse 32, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They recognize, the disciples recognize, Jesus is the God-man. And Jesus is worthy of our worship because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So we see through this passage, Jesus 
and Peter are this object lesson for us in our experiences, in our circumstances. As we live by faith, we must continue to cling to the object of our faith. And this, just like we have an object lesson before us here, our lives are to be object lessons for others. That as they see our lives, they would see our clinging to Jesus. Now, there's a temptation. The temptation is for you and me to create a veneer over our lives. That there is this varnish. A veneer is a decorative covering for something, a piece of wood or a piece of glass. One individual said this, When I first became a Christian, I was a poor beggar telling other poor beggars where to find bread. But gradually, I became an ex-beggar telling other people, go find bread. You are never an ex-beggar. Don't let there be a veneer, a varnish over your life. Let your life be an object lesson to others in your blessings that you are praising God for his sustainment, in your difficulties that you're leaning upon him. When you fall into temptation and sin, that they know that you are not perfect, that you need forgiveness. Just like Peter and Jesus are object lessons, we are to be object lessons to the watching world, aren't we? The danger is to think of the gospel only as this propositional truth that saves us in time past, rather than remembering that it is a continual thing that affects us in our lives. And so I challenge you, in what ways has the gospel been displayed, been demonstrated in your life, even recently? Not, not simply from when you said a prayer and got saved and were justified in time past. How is the gospel at work and on display in your life now? Three years ago, uh, 2018 roughly, I was doing pulpit supply. I traded places with a person uh, in Germany. He came back for his son's wedding. I went to Germany to go preach for a couple weeks at their church. Well, we find out the week before we leave that Precious is pregnant. And so we're there in Germany. You know, she's maybe five to seven weeks pregnant, roughly whatever it is. We don't exactly know. And sadly, there while we're in Germany, Precious miscarries. Um, and we're there surrounded by a church body that we did not know at all. And they just enveloped us with God's love and his comfort and his compassion in our moment of need. That's just one little snapshot. You have similar things of varying kinds that you can point to and say, there. And you, That's a highlight, but all these places where you can point to and say, God's saving power, his gospel, is at work and in display in my life through his people, through his church. You have those circumstances. You have those situations that you can call your mind to. It reminds us that all these things that we go through, every moment of suffering, every trial, every time we sink in the waves, I've lost where this quote came from or who said it. But it goes like this. Every wind that buffets us, Every wind that buffets us is a wind that blows our ship closer and closer to the harbor of heaven. Every wind, every trial that buffets us is one that blows us closer 
to the harbor of heaven, both figuratively in that we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, but also literally as we progress through time to heaven itself, to that last day. And just like the disciples, God's demonstrations of what he has done in your life and in my life are what drive us to worship. That's what drives the disciples to worship. Seeing who Jesus is and what he has done drives them to their knees and they worship him. And so as you're here on Sunday after Sunday, we're here to worship him together, not simply because he saved us 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but because his power is at work and on display now and it causes us to fall to our knees and worship him. So is that why you're here today? Not just for what he's done in time past, but what he's done for you today. This past week, we're here to worship him for those reasons. Well, as the disciples say in the end, truly you are the son of God. It reminds us of all of these issues of Jesus' identity throughout the gospels and especially even in the Gospel of Matthew. In music, and musicians can correct me later, I know you will, the music builds and builds in a, in a piece of music to a crescendo, to a moment of great loudness, uh, the, the loudest normal, uh, the loudest movement in the piece of music. There is a, a buildup and a crescendo and these issues of Jesus' identity throughout the gospel are building, building to a crescendo at the cross. Matthew 8, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew 12, could this be the son of David? Matthew 13, is this not the carpenter's son? Matthew 14, our passage today. Matthew 16, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then at the cross, as Jesus is on the cross, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many of the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This climax has been building when the centurion, then those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The crescendo that is built up to who Jesus is, the Son of God, slain for sinners. That on the cross, not just the divine power of God is displayed, but all of his attributes, his wrath, his love, his forgiveness that's available to all who look to the cross and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to this God, to the sovereign and divine Son of God that we need, to him be dominion and power and glory forever. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful that though we are faithless, you remain faithful. That while we doubt, while we sink, so to speak, that you keep your hand upon us. Lord, we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed upon you. We do ask that you would bring to our mind remembrance of those ways in which you have been at work sustaining us. We ask that you would conform us to Christ through our sufferings, that as you put us in situations of great difficulty, 
of great danger, of suffering, that you would use it to display your power, that your name would be proclaimed in our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.